I'm Sabrina, and you're listening to Let's Talk About It. Today's episode is with Samir Vasavada, who is the co-founder of Vise. Vise is an AI portfolio management company, and it's very fitting because I'm actually in New York today, a couple blocks from Wall Street. Basically, his technology is helping wealth managers and investors invest in a more easy, efficient, and profitable way. And he is actually the youngest person to have built a billion-dollar company. We talk about so many interesting things in this episode, like how AI is going to change jobs and change our life, and you know where this industry is headed, and what it was like building and running a company at his age. So he has some great insights for all of you. He really breaks it down, and I'm really looking forward to you listening to it. Hi, Samir. How's it going? It's going well. How are you? Doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. So the last time we spoke was almost two years ago, and so much has changed since then with Vise, and it has grown so much since then. So I'm really excited to talk about you know what's going on today and to ask you to help us break some things down and explain some things. Um, you grew up in Ohio. I did. I grew up in Cleveland, one of the most interesting places in the entire U.S., <laughs> And your your childhood there, like, what were you spending your time doing? Um, you know, because Cleveland was such a boring place, right? yeah. in the Midwest, you know, there wasn't all too much to do, and, you know, people weren't very motivated. Mm-hmm. I just, for some reason, always had so much energy in me as a little kid. Um, so I started with, like, building Legos and, like, just trying to build different things with different contraptions, and then, you know, it became, like... You know, my first entrepreneurial endeavor was a garage sale. Mm. So, like, my grandmother had all this, like, junk in her garage. And I was like, oh, like, maybe I could sell it and, like, make some money. And I was, like, I don't know, like, eight or nine years old. Yeah. Like, I got all my cousins and we were like, let's, uh, let's create a garage sale. We made some money and it was, like, the most exciting feeling I've ever had. And I was like, oh, I like like, like this. Like, this is a lot of fun. Oh, so you you knew you, uh, you wanted to build something. You wanted to make yes. money. Mm. I knew I wanted to build something. I knew I wanted to make money. And... When my school had this like program to like give out laptops, yeah, I was like one of the first people to get a laptop, and then like I saw the power of technology and like all you can do with software, and you know learned about tech and was just inspired. I want to hear more about that. Like, when did you first get into technology, and like what were you doing on your laptop? I'd probably say like fifth or sixth grade um, was like when we like first started getting like laptops and like there was an IT team and like we got to like work with the school's IT team and like they would teach us about like how to build software and like games and like I built like my first like couple of like video games on software and like that was super exciting and I just like wow your school it. sounds really ahead of the curve yeah in, in that sense honestly it was that's awesome I think, uh, it was an opportunity that uh you know not too many people got at that time and i think we were lucky to have, uh, have gotten it i think it was like a little competitive advantage in some sense yeah definitely and what was the experience that brought you and your co-founder runic together so my parents, unlike most, were like, you know, you can't go to traditional summer camp. You have to go to, like, summer camp for smart people, mm. which was the summer program at Northwestern. I'm not sure if you ever did any of these, like, college summer programs. I didn't, but uh, my friends did. Yeah. Well, we uh, we did this, and Runic was in the dorm across from me. And I had this, like, idea for this, like, game I wanted to build. And it was it was called Galaxy Guru. It was, uh-huh. like, asteroids falling, <laughs> and, like, you'd, like, move the thing and shoot the asteroids. And... I didn't know how to build it. It was, like, more complicated than any other games I built. And I was like, hey, Runic, like, do you know how to, like, build a game? And he's like, yeah, bro, like, I know how to build a game. Like, I'll help you with it. And he, like, helped me build the game once, like, the summer camp was over. And 
we were like, well, like this was pretty fun to build. Like, what if we built apps for other like small businesses? So we yeah. started building apps for these like small and medium sized businesses when we were like eighth, ninth grade, and like we were making money on the side. And he was living in Detroit, and I was living in Cleveland. And he's like this math prodigy. So we got this uh, research opportunity at uh, MIT doing like math and AI research. And we're like, well, what if we kind of took some of those, you know, that knowledge and applied it to uh, applied it to app building? And that's when we kind of built our first startup. Which and your first startup was. A consulting firm, correct? No. So our first startup was a, a – it wasn't really a startup. Like it was like our first kind of foray into it. Yeah, it's technically your second after the Galaxy game. Yes. Uh, it wasn't really <laughs> a startup. But um, we were trying to use AI to build apps. So we were like – we had this idea. Like what if you were able to type in your app idea? Like what kind of principles you want in your app and like the features you want? Like our system could like build you an app. Wow. And you know, it was a really hard technical problem that we had no idea how to solve. And we worked with all the wrong people. We worked with this one guy who was, like, responsible for hacking Sony Media. We heard this other guy who was, like, this real estate fraudster. There was all these people we could meet on the Internet. <laughs> and our parents had, like, no idea what we were doing. Um, but it was, like, obviously the wrong thing to be doing. And we realized that about a year in and decided to, like, shut it down. But one of the people that was helping us out was this former investment banker. And he's like, you guys seem to know so much about, you know, AI and machine learning and all these kind of frontier technologies. All these investment banks want to learn about it. You should start consulting with them. So we just kind of introduced us to our first like handful of consulting opportunities, which is kind of how we got into finance. And then, okay, very interesting. So you are basically going to banks and and financial institutions and helping explain artificial intelligence to them. Exactly. Yeah. So it started with like basic AI concepts, and then like as they kind of got more and more educated on how these concepts work, we got really in depth with them on like how AI can be applied to like money management and wealth management, mm. and like we were learning a lot of this on the fly as we went. Yeah. But, like we had, like a nuanced perspective because like we knew about technology they didn't know about, and we could kind of educate them on it and like get big, big opportunities with them. And so clearly there was an interest and learning about these kind of cutting edge technologies from from Wall Street and you already you could tell that yeah i mean like we knew it was the future like yeah. you know you got you got to pay attention to the future and when you guys walked in and you were as young as like 17 18 when you were doing this we were the first project we did we were 16 16 yeah. when you two walked in as you know 16 and 17 year olds did you get met with any um Strangeness, or they were welcoming. They were like, "Here are so these young, like tried tech to geniuses." Hide it, which okay. is the fun thing. Which was like, we were like, "Oh, we're older," and like, we had a <laughs> resume that looked kind of legit. Yeah, and we like pretended like we were older, and no one really knew, like because if they knew how old we were, they wouldn't like be as opening to us. Yeah, and like we just like always turned our video off on Zoom and mm. things like that. And then at one point in time, I got a. I had a speaking opportunity at this conference and they like flew us out and the whole thing. And like that one time I was like, yeah, I'm actually like, I don't know, I was like 16 or 17. I'm like, yeah, I'm like actually like pretty young. And like they were actually okay with it. Wow. But on the contrary, they found out, one of the consulting groups found out how old we were on a, like one of the projects and they like fired us and like we got never got any more consulting projects from them. So. Wow. Very interesting. So it's like that world's not necessarily as open to very young people as as maybe like tech is in Silicon Valley. No, not at all. Um, yeah. I think that they think that like pedigree and age is, you know. There's more hierarchy there. Exactly. There's much more of a hierarchy. So you guys are doing this consulting gig and you're making a lot of money and you guys are kind of becoming experts on the fly, but you're gaining a real wealth of knowledge here. And then, you know, what led you to, to start Vise in what it is today? 
Yeah, for sure. So we started Vise, I would say, probably like a year into our consulting work. And what we realized, like the, the interesting thing we realized, and both of us were like super passionate about finance and like the stock market. Like we were like trading stocks like when we were young and like having a bunch of fun with it. And we realized like, you know, the wealth management industry is not what we thought it was. Mm-hmm. It's like one of the biggest industries in the world. There's like $225 trillion in global wealth management assets. There's like $85 trillion in just the U.S. And it's wow. managed by these people that like just aren't that smart. Like no offense to any wealth managers listening, but – like they are, they are really great relationship managers. So like their clients, marriage counselors, their therapists, their coaches, they're not like the expert money managers that we thought they were. Like they're, but they don't claim to be either, right? They claim to be really good at like kind of helping you understand your goals and you know being like your coach. So they were using these outdated investment solutions, these like mutual funds, yeah. ETFs, like very generic investment products that were not at all personalized to the client's investment needs. They were really expensive. They weren't at all tax efficient. They were just like generic. Right? Yeah. And we thought that if we were able to use technology that could kind of analyze everything about a particular client, how much money they have to invest, their goals, their net worth, their needs, and use AI machine learning to be able to build highly personalized portfolios of like individual stocks and bonds and other assets tailored directly to that client's needs and then automate all the management and provide the intelligence to explain the portfolios and give it to advisors as a software platform mm. – it would make it so they could focus on what they're actually good at, which is like relationships, and everything else would be done on our platform. Totally, like a necessary tool for them, basically. Um, and what what are examples of like you know needs and specifications that a client would want? Because like some people might think, well, when they just have all their clients invest in the same things because those would be you know the best stocks or the best investments. But what is what are examples of that tailoring, personal tailoring? Yeah, for sure. So it's interesting because every client's different, right? Mm-hmm. Like you are different than me, who's different than all your friends, right? Even though we might have like similar characteristics, everyone has their own kind of unique preferences, right? No matter who they are. Mm-hmm. So like here's the example, right? Like you might work at Facebook, right? And because you work at Facebook, you have Facebook stock, or maybe you work at Microsoft and you have Microsoft stock in your portfolio more than everyone else, right? You want to de-risk from that Facebook exposure, right? You want to mm. de-risk from that Microsoft exposure, right? So you want to re- restrict exposure to Facebook and reduced exposure to like technology. And then let's say you really care about the environment. Yeah. You only want to invest in companies that are environmentally friendly and you have a different definition than your friends do, right? You want to exclude all the companies that are environmentally unfriendly and like overweight to companies that are environmentally friendly. Um, let's say you are like a risk-taking investor, right? You yeah. want to take more risk. You want to make bigger bets. Exactly. Right. You can take more risk on your portfolio and like weight yourself to like higher volatility stocks. Right. So there's things like that. And then there are other things that the advisor might have, like, you know, more sophisticated strategies, which is like we see, you know, inflation rising. And as a result, like this is how the market's going to be impacted. So we're going to overweight value versus growth. Right. Yeah. Um, Or, you know, whatever, whatever it might be. The advisor has their own kind of strategy. Right. So we can kind of codify that strategy and allow the platform to kind of personalize around it. That is fascinating. And when people hear AI, they often think, okay, AI is replacing humans. There's like this association there. But that's not the case with what Vice is trying to do at all. No, we're trying to enable humans. We're trying to empower humans, right? Mm -hmm. Like the way I've always thought about it is, you know, every job, every human job over the next like 20 years is going to change, right? Even probably 50 years, it's going to change, right? Like 100 years ago, 98% of the population was was, was farmers, right? Because like that's how they had to support, right? But then like machinery came out and like factories and new like manufacturing processes and, you know, like 
that number just slowly went down and down and down. And now like sub 2% of the population is a farmer, right? I think it's going to be no different with how like AI affects all of these industries, right? There's still going to be jobs. There's going to be human relationship oriented jobs, but the focus of those jobs are going to change, right? Because human, yeah. like technology is going to augment and it's going to empower um, a lot of these people to be better at their jobs and be more successful. Yeah. And you've clearly deep dived into this industry. And from the beginning, you saw, hey, there's a major gap with this wealth management thing and like how they're really running it. And for, you know, other people listening to this that want to start a company, I'm going to help them out. Do you see any other areas like in the Wall Street financial system, wealth management, just where there is need for change and it's ripe for innovation? Everywhere. Really? Because here's the interesting thing. Yeah. Everyone's building consumer products right now. Because consumer mm. products are like the sexy, fun, interesting products. Yeah. But like all of these massive financial services companies that like aren't going anywhere anytime soon still have like all of these manual, old, legacy dated processes and systems and software that like should be totally overhauled, right? Not even just in the wealth management space, but like in the insurance space, like InsureTech and in like, you know, all like loan authorization and banking and mortgages like there's not that many companies that are building tech for like that part of the market right and it's like so massive you can build you know 100 billion dollar companies in this space because of how important it is totally it's like on like the less sexy industries honestly need more attention and more technical people or founders going going there and and starting things and and helping them honestly it improves people's lives to build technology that's going to make a wealth manager's day-to-day easier more efficient and honestly offer a better product to their clients yeah exactly yeah I just want to take a second and, you know, break it down in case anyone doesn't understand what artificial intelligence is. Could you just give us a quick definition? Yeah. So I think that there's this common misconception, like, that AI is, like, the Terminator. Yeah. And, like, it can, like, think on its own, like, draw conclusions and references from all these data and, like, like kill you. And, like, <laughs> that's not really what it is. And mm-hmm. we're, like, really far away from that. Really what most AI is is just, like, pattern recognition. And, like, AI is this kind of umbrella term for a bunch of different types of technologies, like machine learning and others, and, like, computer vision and image recognition and all these different things. Um, and it's really, like, there's two types of AI. There's, like, narrow AI and general AI. Yeah. General intelligence is, like, the holy grail. It's, like, AI that can do all kinds of different things. Um, whereas narrow AI, which is, like, kind of what everyone's using, is simply just kind of pattern recognition, right? It's an algorithm that, given a set of inputs, can identify patterns in the data and, like, identify an output um, based on those patterns and, like, you know, there's all kinds of data in the world that needs to be analyzed, and AI can sometimes be, you know, very helpful in terms of, uh, you know, a better process. But oftentimes AI is not the answer to uh, solving most problems, right? Like a simple, like, set of rules or instructions um, can do just fine. Yeah, totally. Okay, thank you very much, because I think it's... Does that make sense, or is it too complicated? No, no, no. Honestly, it, it totally makes sense, and I think... It's good to understand at the end of the day, it's something, you know, it's based off of statistics. It's based off of data. It's not something that's just, you know, creating something out of nothing. It's based off of what we're already exactly. doing or like what your goals yeah. are. These concrete things that we do have control over. And yeah, you have to like feed it with data. Exactly. Um, it is not this like sentient being. I know. It's really funny. There totally is. I also feel like all these futuristic movies are, are not helping that that feeling. No, of that, that our future is out of our control and there's going to be some... I mean, it's, it's scaring a lot of people. I think that, like, over the next 50 years, yeah. I think it could, you know, potentially 
get out of control. But who knows? Just out of curiosity, like what is that worst case scenario you see that actually being a possibility with AI in a hundred years? Mm. I mean, like there's like some chance that it could like turn against us, mm. and you know, I we don't know. Like we don't know. I think we barely understand really how it works, like how it would work. And if we like somehow are able to build it and don't actually understand how it works um, and like a small set of people have access to it, they could like rule over everyone else. Like think about like, you know, AI being able to be used by like a handful of governments that have the technology no differently than nuclear weapons. And they're like, you know, using it for like purposes that are not friendly. And not. It's true. But it's I mean, you guys are you. You guys are giving this tool out to a lot of people, which is cool. It's like democratizing AI with people that, you know, wouldn't otherwise be able to build that into the way they're making investments. And there's companies like Robinhood, which have been known to like, you know, democratize investing. Now anyone can do it from an app. And I'm curious if you have any goals or like vision for how you could get more people to be able to use your product beyond wealth managers? Or do you want to keep it in that space? So the long-term vision yeah. is to basically level the playing field, mm. to offer VIs for everyone, right? And wealth managers are the best entry point because they manage the most amount of money, right? As I was saying, they manage like $85 trillion in the U.S. That is a huge amount. Huge, right? And I think once we're able to, you know, get a decent foothold on that market, um, we'll be able to kind of expand into offering a product to consumers and offering a product to institutions and foundations. And, you know, the idea is that we have one software platform that's able to manage all of the world's assets. Wow. Um, in an automated, intelligent way. Well, I look forward to that for you. And and in terms of your business plan and how, you know, Vise is making money, um, how are you guys making money? So we manage the assets. So, like, let's say you're using the Vise product. You will, like, give us your savings or your retirement or whatever it is. And we're going to manage all the trades and all the ongoing rebalances and all the management of the portfolio. And in turn, we're going to charge our assets under management fee. Mm. So we'll charge like half a percent of the total assets we're managing, right? Wow. That, that's good. And I guess it makes the wealth manager's life much improved. And so it's it's worth that to them. Yeah. I mean, if you were a wealth manager and you were able to manage like 100 clients, now mm -hmm. you're hopefully able to manage 150 or 200 clients, right? In this like theoretical world. That's so true. Actually, it, it, it makes it way more efficient for them. Yeah, exactly. And I want to ask you about the fundraising process for Vise because honestly, you guys have killed it. When I met you, your first check was from Dorm Room Fund, and then you had your Series A and B led by Sequoia, which is, you know, an industry like legend. And then you recently, recently ish, closed your Series C of $65 million led by Ribbit Capital. Am I right? Yes. And I think that is a testament to Vise and the product that you created, but it's also a testament to you and your co-founder, Runic, and your ability to share your vision, their trust in you to you know, create a team, create a company out of it, and your storytelling. And there's so much that goes into fundraising, and I'm curious, like, how was that process for you? And you didn't have... You didn't have like um, you know connections to Silicon Valley when you started this, so like how did you enter it? And you've done so well. <laughs> oh, thank you. It's funny. I remember when we first met, I was like super stressed. I don't know what we were around it with Series A. We were trying to raise, and we're like, like how do we do this? And yeah. This process and it's fundraising is really hard. 
right? Mm-hmm. But it gets easier over time, right? Because you like figure out how to tell your story and how to tell the narrative. And I think the way we thought about it was there is this huge opportunity ahead of us, right? Like there's an opportunity to build a massive business in one of the most important markets in the world because like after people's health, the next thing they care about is their wealth. And like, you know, this is a really important company, right? And it was telling that story to investors. And when we first did it, like, you know, we didn't really know how to tell the story and people also didn't have reason to trust us because we were just two random teenagers. Mm. And we get a lot of no's. Like we went, we knocked on like 100 investors' doors and we're like, hey, you know, do you want to fund this? Like it's super interesting. Like we can build this massive business. And investors are like, well, we don't really understand wealth managers. We think it's all going to be replaced by technology. Humans aren't really that important. But you kept faith in your idea. Exactly. We kept okay. faith in the idea. The idea is pretty much the same as when we started, which is really funny um, because it, it also means that like you've got to challenge challenge what people say, right? Because when people say like, oh, you can't do this, or this is never going to work, or whatever it might be, um, you got to challenge them because they're probably wrong, right? Mm. The only thing that matters is you've got a vision and you can stick to it. And given new information from people, like maybe your customers, you are able to iterate, but you're able to hold your vision, right? And you're able to like use grit, right? Yeah. So would you say that's your biggest advice for other people who are going to start fundraising? I mean, my biggest advice for people that are that are fundraising are make sure you have the right co-founder. Like, you know, half the reason why we're really successful is, um, you know, Runic and I have this incredible partnership. And like, yeah. Runic is like my brother and we have an amazing partnership. And make sure you've got an idea in a market that's really big that can support the idea. So you're solving a really important problem. Your idea might not have to be great, but you're solving a But there's a lot of growth potential there. There's a lot of growth potential, right? There's a huge market to build a massive business. Um, You've got the right team of people behind you. Um, So like you've partnered with the right set of people that are like helping you build the product. Yeah. Think about the business. Um, And then lastly, like you stick to it, right? You don't Mm -hmm. give up because a lot of people are going to say no. And they're going to say no and no and no. Like, you got to get really comfortable with rejection. Okay. it's going to happen a ton and it's going to feel awful. But you just got to let it go. Yeah. Okay, that's so true. It's just like grit. That's what I feel like founders that I've interviewed or or listened to on interviews, that's, that's often their biggest takeaway. Because I think once someone's successful, people watching that person for probably – don't think about all the times that that person like didn't feel successful or heard no a bunch of times or was not believed in. Um, something I want to ask you is that once you did get backing from some of these amazing firms like, you know, Sequoia, um, and you had some really renowned investors and entrepreneurs investing in you, um, how did you decide when to, you touched on this, but when to take someone's advice and when to trust your gut? Because like, I think that gets more confusing when you seem to have, you know, these renowned people like who become friends who want to help you out. That is a really good question um, that not a lot of people think about. Yeah. What happens is once you're at the point where like you have all the resources, um, like we have all the money, we have all the resources and all the connections and everything, um, everyone wants to help you out. Mm. Right. And the problem is there's so many different ways to build a company. And if you listen to some people's advice on some things versus other people's advice on other things, and some of it is conflicting, some of it is not in your best interest, some of it's very biased, um, it's like really hard to know who to listen to and who to trust, right? So we did it a little bit differently, which was, you know, first we screwed up and we took advice from too many people and we were just all over the place. We had no idea how to manage ourselves and like we just made a ton of mistakes and it was really awful. And we kind of learned from that really quickly. Mm. And we decided that we would only take advice from a handful of people. We took advice from like the founders of Brex, who are really close friends of ours and you know, some of our really good friends, um, who know how we like to build a company, who know like 
everything about us and we know how they build a company. So like we can go to them for most advice because we know that like Enrique and Pedro have had like solved most problems, right? And because they've solved it, we can go to them for the answer totally. rather than having to kind of figure it out on our own. Totally. So it's like you don't need to relive mistakes that a friend could help you out avoiding because exactly. they've been there. But also, yeah, I mean, they're young and that's an amazing company that has really popped often popped up in the last five years. But it's like, say you were taking advice from someone that killed killed it in the industry 20 years ago, it might be a very different ecosystem. And even though they have a lot of expertise and experience, some things just might not be the same. So I get that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to sometimes talk to those people for historical context, because sometimes yeah. history repeats itself. Totally. And it's important to know, yeah. but like not to overweight over-optimize on a ton of different people's advice. Like, go mm -hmm. to a handful of people and build, like, really close relationships with them. So find people you really trust, respect, and and go to them consistently rather than just, you know, taking any anything you can get. Yeah, like, make sure that you have the right board on, yeah. on your side, right? Like, once you start to raise more money, you have to bring a board of directors on, in place. And, like, Sean McGuire from Sequoia is incredible. He's, like, you know, super involved in the business. and One of the smartest and hardworking people I know. And, you know, having someone like that on your side who's, yeah. like, constantly helping you build the business is really powerful. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And once you got, you know, tens of millions of dollars of funding to grow Vise and create that company that you envisioned, this all happened in the past year, right? Yeah, probably past— Year and a half. Year and a half, too. But the funny thing is we've been working on the business now for six, mm -hmm. right? So, like, it is— the pain and hardship of running a company for five, six years, but like all of the growth has happened in the last year and a half. It's just wow. weird how things work. Wow. That's awesome to hear. You really like stuck it through and put in a lot of the work in the early days. Yeah. And you're probably still in the thick of that. And what I want to ask you about is now that you have the resources to really build a a large team. You've had to hire how many people in the last year or have gotten to hire? Yeah, I mean in excess of a hundred. Wow. What has that been like? I feel like building a team is one of the hardest things and one of the most essential things to creating a, a really awesome company. What are the lessons you've learned the hard way in the past year of just building this team? It's probably the hardest yeah. thing you'll do as a founder because you need to do a couple things really effectively. You have to like build culture and building culture is really hard mm -hmm. because like we didn't know what good culture looks like versus bad culture, right? Because we'd never been in a high performing organization before. So we have to build culture from scratch, right? And culture changes based on every decision you make, every new person you bring in, every time you fire someone, and every time someone makes a mistake, right? And you need to create what looks like a great culture that people want to work at and make sure that people are happy and are driven and motivated to work while also making sure that you're able to ship product on time and like build the organization quickly. Wow. Which is hard. I think the next thing is from a talent acquisition standpoint, like recruiting people to join your company when you have, you know, relatively no brand, it's relatively early, um, is really difficult, right? And what we learned was smart people attract other smart people, right? So when we found like the smartest people on the UPenn campus and the smartest people on the Stanford campus and the smartest engineers from the top tech companies like Dropbox and Google, Everyone else wanted to work for those people, right? Mm. So once you hire smart people, more smart people follow. And smart people. How do you decide if someone's smart? Some people are great at pitching themselves and you, you know, do a certain number of interviews and at a certain point you have to just like hope your instinct is right on that person. Um, what are some ways that like you do judge a candidate? 
That is very hard. And I still don't have a great answer, but mm-hmm. the most up-to-date answer is someone who's high aptitude, so someone who can learn really quickly. So there's different ways to kind of test how fast someone can learn um, based on their communication abilities, I think is also an interesting one. So like, how do they communicate when building a product? Are they like a solo you know, person and you just like stick them in a room and they want to build or do they work well on a team? How do they think about team building? So usually like giving someone a project, like a team project during the interview process to see how they build, what their thought process is, how they overcome challenges, how they work on a team is pretty important. Yeah. I would also say that I think that people's just pure ability um, to be able to do things. You put them on a really hard problem and you see, you know, how quickly are they able to get it done? Like how thoughtful were they in the process? Like how did they think about solving the problem, right? Um, is, a, is a pretty good test, right? But you can't really trust on someone's word or resume that they can do it. Totally. So it's good to actually put them to test in these, these yes. different ways and give Always them some them like, test. okay, good to know for people who might apply to Vise and also for other founders looking to hire. And um, personally, I've, I imagine that you've had to personally manage more people now. How many people are direct um, to you? I think like 10, but I'm bringing that number down. So I'm primarily managing just executives now. Okay. So I'm managing like our CTO and our um, CPO, like our chief people officer, yeah. our chief sales officer, chief marketing officer, and then like all of the board level relationships and things like that. And it's really less about managing people and more about coaching them and setting direction, right? Mm. Because when you can hire a really good executive, like our CTO is a former VP of infrastructure at Dropbox, um, and he's like a world-class CTO. Like he knows how to run a Mm -hmm. technical team way, way better than I can run a technical team. So it's more about setting direction as to here's where we want to go as a business. Here's the milestones we want to hit. Here's the products we want to launch. Um, and seeing like, how can we work together as a team um, cross-functionally to be able to do that? Okay. That's awesome. And something that you said uh, that's really interesting about creating culture and managing people is like, when you started out, it was a very small team. It was you and Runic, and then you had some other people that were there from the start. But I feel like probably your reactions to things when they're not going well or when they're going great or the emails you send, like it used to be way more casual, this tight knit team. And now that it's this large organization and you are really aware of the culture you're creating, just like how has that changed your actions? I'm sure it's, it's just a good thing, but in terms of like, have you had to grow at all? Just like as a leader, it's, it's honestly a very different thing. Oh, a ton. Yeah. It's completely changed because before you're smart, small, tight knit group of people, almost like a family. And you can be really direct. You can just say like, hey, like get your shit done. Like where are we at on these things? Mm -hmm. And what happens as you start to grow is you've got all these different people with different perspectives and you've got to be a little bit more careful with like how you talk, right? Because you don't want to, you don't want to say the wrong thing to trigger the wrong person because you didn't really mean what you were saying in this particular like in this particular function versus a different one. And you have less interactions with a lot of the, like, you know, people and the the employees advise. So it's, there's greater weight on each interaction in a sense. Like if someone's only interacted with you a couple of times, they're going to make that judgment and in those. So it's exactly. different. You don't have a relationship with everyone. Right? Yeah. And that's like really hard as a leader, right? To not have a relationship with your team makes it so, you know, leading is a little bit more difficult. Yeah. And during the pandemic, were you guys virtual the whole time or have you hopefully gone to be in the office now? So we started going to the office 
as of September last year. Okay. And, like, a lot of culture was built in the office because, like, we got to spend time with the team, really getting to know people, like, really getting to invest in each other as, like, friends and also as colleagues. And I think that it was very valuable for the company. The problem is as the business starts to scale with kind of remote work, more and more people want to work remotely. And it's really difficult to build culture both in the office and out of the office and like remote and merge them together. Because they're kind of two different companies, right? Mm. They're two different cultures. So we're trying to make the decision as to like where does the world go and like what does the world look like in this kind of post-COVID world? Yeah. And what are you thinking now? I think it's going to be some kind of hybrid model where there's like a three-day required you know, being in the office and, you know, a couple of days you can work from home, right? And I think it's less about, you know, at some point, hopefully COVID will pass, um, but it's less about the, you know, wellness risk and it's more about people can be really productive at home, right? Mm -hmm. And if you want to go in the office, you can be productive in the office. Like it's proven that sales teams are more effective when they work in the office. But like maybe engineering teams like a couple of days of in-person interaction, like do architecture and planning and like when they're actually just trying to get stuff done, you know, they work better at home. Totally. So it's just like creating creating a a company structure that allows for both. And I agree with you. I totally I think it's going to be some type of hybrid. I also think COVID gave people more of a choice of where to live and I don't think everyone's going to want to give that up. And talent, there is a need for talent honestly, and so I feel like talent does have a lot of power now to be where they want to be and what they want to do. Yeah, I mean, talent has more power than they've ever had before. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that is? Like, why do you think there is, do you think there's just more companies that need, you know, engineering talent and people like that? Or do you think there's like, what's going on? Like, why is there this shortage? It seems like there's a finite number of engineers mm -hmm. and there's not as many engineers, like new engineers every year. Um, there's still a lot, but compared to the hiring demand for engineers and also these big tech companies are consistently kind of raising the bar in terms of how much they're paying talent. Yeah. It makes it really difficult for startups to recruit right? because there's only so much great talent. Yeah. So if when you're say I was an amazing engineer that you really want to be on the Vice team, like what do you tell them? Like how do you convince them to come to you? So it's funny because most of the time it's not even really us interviewing them, it's uh, them interviewing us. Right? Uh, um, like yeah, asking you like, a lot of questions. Why should it's like no different than making an investment, right? Like you're instead of investing your money, you're investing in your time, right? Mm. And they only have so many like you know, opportunity, like you've only got so much time, right? So they really want to make sure that they're like working at the right place, a place with the right values, the right mission, like that aligns with like what they want to do with their career. And also, as I mentioned, like that has the smartest people, right? Are you learning from the people you're around, right? When you're around other brilliant engineers, you're going to learn a lot from them, right? And you want to be in a place that's like growing you as an engineer or growing you as a salesperson or growing you as a marketing person, um, not a place where you're kind of top dog. Totally. So it's really about creating a team of like quality people that people are going to want to learn from and work with. And like it is based off of each other in a yeah, way. Yeah, exactly. You yeah. want to grow from each other. Definitely. And I want to ask you about just like the process of building this company and a little bit of a wider lens. What do you think have been some of the greatest challenges that you've faced? So the greatest challenges were actually personal challenges mm. um, because like I knew this is what I wanted to do like when I was like five or six years old, like building a company, like dominating the world was just like really <laughs> exciting to us. And um, you think that was innate in you? Like, do you have siblings where your did your parents grill these expectations in you or what was that no, built from? No, my parents were very different, right? They were like, you know, your expectation should be like being a doctor or like whatever it might be, um, like be like us. It wasn't, you know, wasn't at all this. I honestly don't know where it came from. 
Um, I think I just loved building things and like, you know, I loved like creating things, something that was my own. Mm. Um, and I think that like it was kind of innate, like I had extreme passion. Like this was like my like live or die like thing. Wow. Like I couldn't wait on it. Like it was like what I love to do and, you know, it's just what I had to go. So I think like convincing people around me that that was the case and like they should let me do that was really hard. So I think that was the first challenge, right? Well, totally. I guess we're forgetting that you are 15 really when you started just like this whole section of your life. Yeah. Um, like I had horrible grades in school because I was like working on the business all the time, right? And my teachers were upset at me. My parents were upset at me. It was like this really difficult personal challenge I had to get, or get around. Um, and then the other thing was like, you know, I had partners, right? Like Runic. And, you know, Runic didn't want to disappoint his parents. So we like went off to college. And, you know, I had uh, basically graduated high school early and moved to San Francisco and was like living in total shitholes in San Francisco and trying to like survive and build a company with little money. And, you know, Runic had to go to college. And I was like, well, my co founder is leaving to go to college. And like, what am I going to do? Right. So I'd like make a gut decision of like, all right, like I can just like fail or I can move to UPenn, live on his dorm room floor and just make it work. Wow. And that's what I did. So you guys you guys were built in a dorm room like some of the other best startups in the world. Yeah. Um, I mean, our dorm room was really tight. So we tried to build outside <laughs> of the dorm room, but because we were sharing a single, which was not very fun. He like took his mattress topper and like put it on the floor and we put a sheet on it. And that's, that's wow. Slept on. I have a question about another challenge is that when you you know, approach these wealth managers or went on Wall Street to explain what AI is. You hadn't worked in the financial industry before. And so I'm wondering if you were seen as an outsider or like people felt like you didn't really know what you're talking about and like your vision for how AI could change this and make this so much better. Did did they latch onto it? So we made an effort to understand everything we could about the space. So we like sounded like experts mm. and we brought a nuanced and new perspective, right? I often think that the people that disrupt the most important industries in the world oftentimes don't come from those industries. Why is that? Right? Because like if you've been in the financial services industry for the last 20 years, you're going to think like, you know, how can we improve the same thing we've been doing for the last 20 years, not how can we build something entirely new that can transform the industry? It's almost like the perspective gets narrowed over time, and it's, like, really hard to imagine that not being the reality. Yeah, exactly, wow. right? Whereas, like, thinking about a brand new way to do something, right? If you can look from the outside in without kind of the previous perspective on the industry, um, you know, they would uh, they would do something different. Like, if the industry had built this product, they would say, like, how can we build a better mutual fund, not how can we build a technology platform that can manage all assets, right? So... We were able to bring a nuanced perspective, and a lot of people didn't agree with it for the first couple of years. Like we went in these big boardrooms and like met with people, and they would say like, "Hey, um, you know, at some big bank, they would say, hey, you know, we don't think this is the future. Like this is like, you know, not that interesting to us.' Um, and like we had to say like, "No, this is the future, and we're going to keep on plowing on." And then at some point in time, you know, recently. We would go to those same meetings with those same people and they'd say, like, this is the most disruptive, future-looking thing we've ever seen. Like, this is the wow. future space, right? So now that people are completely believing in Vise and believing that this is the future and how they should manage their money and they should, you know, champion these tools um, that are now offered to them, do you have more competitors in the space? Because you were kind of early in it. You had to get people to believe in it. You had to, you know, convince. You got a lot of no's. But now that they're like, okay, no, this is a really clear way that wealth management We'll go, it's not going to be, you know, these robo-advisors or these other things. Are you seeing a lot of companies pop up here or how's that been? Yeah, so 
it's interesting because when we started, we had like no, we were like the first movers. We didn't have any competition. Like I think there's people that tried to do like some kind of variation of what we did in the past, but we like just never really cared about the competition. Mm. And the reason why we never cared about the competition was because we were always able to hire the smartest people. And we were always able, like, we, we kind of got the most funding and built product the quickest and all these different things. But we were always thinking about the customer the whole time, mm. right? And if you could think about the customer the whole time and build the best product for the customer, you know, whatever your competitors are doing are, you know, not really that important. So that sounds, like, amazing and exactly what I think, you know, everyone would, would hope to be focused on. But in reality, it just never got to you and you would see, and like, someone, like, copying your idea? Yeah, I mean— they're copying us, right? So yeah. I mean, we're, we're, we're ahead. And I think the other thing was this wasn't a space that was like, you know, being attacked by technology companies. This mm. is a space that's being attacked by kind of the same legacy people that built the industry. Um, okay. So we could build faster than anyone else could. Do I think that there are two people that are in a garage somewhere that are thinking about how can we disrupt wealth management? Probably. And we should probably be scared of them. Um, but we have a nice head start. And we're thinking customer first. And it's also such a massive space. There can be multiple winners. Totally. I'm not really too concerned about, you know, dominating the competition. Okay, that's so good. I feel like probably some people would get, you know, wrapped up in that or end up being a huge distraction. So it's good that you have your eye on the prize and, you know, customers first. Stay and focused. Talking to your users. And um, I heard that you're one of the youngest people to start a company of this size. Do you, like, feel a lot of pressure? How does that feel? I guess that's that was kind of your dream. Yeah, it's funny. Like, it's like someone's like, oh, you're, like, the youngest person to ever run a billion-dollar company. Yeah, like, that's, that's what I heard. That is great and all, but, like, it's just, like, I haven't won yet. Right? It is mm. a way of, like, my constant mentality, right? And it's, like, a great testament to where we've come so far. But, like, the, the grand vision is, like, this is just, like, 1% the way there, right? Or, like, even less than that, right? Like, I have this whole, like, grand vision that I want to accomplish. And I think that getting there is going to be a lot of fun. But, like, we've got a lot to prove, right? Like, we have not won. We have a lot to build. We have yeah. a lot to uh, show for it. And I think that, like, I still have this, like, paranoia that, like, I have to prove myself in mm -hmm. some sense, right? To all the people that are backing us, I have to prove them right. Right. And all the people that bet on like that, that didn't bet on us and were like nagging us. You have to prove, like, prove them, them wrong. wrong right? And you've been working on this for six years. And what's a piece of advice that you wish you could have told yourself, you know, six years ago that you've learned now? I haven't thought about this, but I think that if I were to go back, I would say invest more in learning faster. Um, so I think I learned too slowly or like at least with the wrong set of people. Like as I told you, like we invested with the wrong kind of group of people. And like the second you start spending more time with like people that are kind of at the level you want to be with. So you like look at yourself in two years of like who is that person I want to be in two years or three years and spending time with that person. Um, Just accelerates your personal growth. Accelerate your personal growth tenfold. Right. Wow. So I think like doing that, right, spending time with like, you know, who, who I hope my future self would be. Um I think I also was really frugal. Like we didn't spend any money on anything. Um, and we were trying to like bootstrap the whole thing and trying to optimize for like dilution and not having investors and things like that. Whereas I would have tried to raise money earlier on. I would have tried to like, you know. I think that's faster. something people always debate. Like how 
how far along does your idea or product need to be before you're going to get back in? Once you've got the asset, like once you've got the idea, like yeah. if someone's willing to give you money, you should take the money, right? Because you'll be able to prove it out and experiment faster than you would be able to without the money. And I think your time oftentimes is more valuable than like future expected earnings, right? Because if I own 50% of a company versus like 20% of a company and you know, the 50% 50 stake took me 10 years longer to get, and it's like worth half as much as the 20% stake. I'd rather get there faster on like taking the investors and taking the people to help you out. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I feel like your point on surrounding yourself with the right people and the people that you're going to want to be like or be at their level is such a big thing. I feel like who you surround yourself with or, you know, getting mentors early on and these things like are so, so key just in any industry and whatever you want to be. Yeah. I mean, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Right? Yeah. It's like important even to like friendship and like, you know, who you spend your time around in personal life is like you want to spend your time around the right people. Totally. And as you've gotten more attention, has that been hard at all? Or like, how do you stay grounded? I think like remembering the roots yeah. is really important because it's like so easy to just like pie in the sky, like, you know, think you're super cool and stuff, but <laughs> like, like, you know, all these cool people you get to spend time with, yeah. and, like um, all the money and all that. And I think that like, you know, it's not like where we're from and it's like not what we had to go through. Yeah. And I think it's also not like where we're going is like so much even more than that. Right. Totally. So it's to stay humble. And I bet your parents now are so proud of you, even though like for a moment they, you know, were worried about the path you were on. Yeah. I'm, I think they are. Think Even they are. my parents, like me, working on this podcast, are like, Sabrina, you need to get, you know, a real job, like, now. Like, that's, the, you know, the, the number one thing, which is obviously very important. Sabrina, but do what you're passionate about. I, I do believe. You've told me that a bunch of times, like, following your passion wholeheartedly, the thing you're going to work on the most, like, with the most time and the most, like, you know, need to succeed, and that's how you feel inside about it. Well, if you're, if you're you know, an example of that, it's going to lead you to the most successful good outcome. So I appreciate that advice you gave me a lot. Um, and I guess just, you know, as a last question to end off, to people listening, you know, today that want to start their own thing, maybe they don't have the right idea, or maybe they feel like they have this big barrier to entry there. Do you have anything to say to them? <laughs> <laughs> think about the biggest problem uh -huh. in your life. Um, think about the biggest problem you care about solving and start there. It doesn't have to start with the idea. It always has to start with the problem. Mm. And don't let anything be a barrier. There's no like, you know, at this point in my life that I can do that or when this thing happens, I can go do that. Just like do it. Like, no excuses. If you want to do it, like no excuses, just do it um, and like figure it out. And I think the other advice I'll say is like move to a big city, right? Because like more things happen even in a post-COVID world, albeit it's easier um, to like get things done in a big city where – the right people are and like, you know, the right kind of group of ideas and opportunities. Thank you, Samir, so much. This was so interesting. I feel like people will, you know, love hearing your story. It's really, really inspiring. And like your insights are, are great. And I think, you know, start a company in an unsexy industry. Don't listen to people who don't believe in you. These are all, these are all pillars of, you know, <laughs> being an entrepreneur. Well, thank you so much for having me. Really enjoyed it.